In case you do not know who I am, my name is Pastor John, and I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. I'm also thankful, as I mentioned earlier, for those watching online. Today I'd like to open our time by talking about titles, a person's title. If somebody has a title before their name, it typically conveys some type of authority. If somebody introduces themselves or we see that they're doctor so-and-so or professor so-and-so, um, if they're a lawyer, at the end of the name, they may have Esquire. If they have some title, then we typically assume that if they're speaking about something, they know what they are talking about. The title implies a certain level of knowledge that that individual has authority in their chosen field. And just by knowing that title, we learn something about that person. Oh, this person is a doctor, a medical doctor, so they know something about medicine. Oh, they're a doctor of history, they must know something about history. Well, over the past few weeks, we have been studying the gospel according to Mark, and we've been trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And just like somebody may have doctor, professor, a title in their name, Jesus is given several titles in God's word. And if we want to answer the question, who is Jesus, then learning at least what some of those titles are and what they mean can help us to answer that question. So today we're going to look at the story, the account of Jesus healing a paralytic, a paralyzed man. And that's from Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you've been in a church before or you've spent some time hearing stories about Jesus, it may be a story that you're somewhat familiar with. But if you're new to church or new to the Bible, this is the first time you're really studying Jesus, this is a powerful story because it tells us a lot about who Jesus is, what he's about, what his desire was, what he was trying to accomplish. And as we read through this text, you'll see Jesus gives himself a title. The title he gives himself is Son of Man. Son of Man. And that phrase, son of man, it could just mean someone who's a human or someone who is a man. But when Jesus uses this term, this title, he seems to have something more important in mind. And so this morning, as we look at this text, again, Mark 2, 1 through 12, we're going to see at least three important truths we can learn about this title of Jesus, son of man. And the way we're going to look at them is we're going to start with what in the text is the least important and go to the most important. It's not that what we start with is unimportant or doesn't matter. It's just what is emphasized in our passage. So we're going to start with what's least emphasized and go to what is most emphasized. And what we'll discover is that our passage is going to empathize, empathize not empathize. That's when you care for someone. Our passage is going to highlight the authority of the Son of Man. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to, again, Mark 2, 1 through 12. And if you're able to stand, I would ask you to please do so, so that we can uh, honor God's Word and as I read our passage today. If you'd like to use the blue Bible in that seat back in front of you, I believe it's on page 995. It's also, though, going to be up on the screen behind me. So Mark 2, I'll read. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Starting in verse 1, it says, When he, Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. 
And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you give us the wisdom and grace this morning to understand who Jesus is. May we see that he is the Son of Man, the one who we can bring the lost, the suffering, the hurting to, the one who is able to heal. Lord, teach us that he is able to forgive sin. Our greatest problem, our greatest need, and he is the solution because he has authority. Help us to see that authority, lead changed lives as results. May we see clearly who Jesus is such that we would decrease before his glory and that he would increase. May he be our focus. May he be the one we praise. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we're going to look at at least three truths about this Son of Man and what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to interact with Him, how we view Him. And the first truth that comes through in our passage is that we are told to bring the suffering to the Son of Man. Bring the suffering to the Son of Man. And remember what I said, we're going to start with the least uh, emphasized point. So this is the one that's highlighted the least, but it's still extremely important for us to grasp and to practice. This passage we read told us about these four men who realize their paralyzed friend needs to see Jesus. If we look at our passage, verse 1 talks about Jesus returning to the city of Capernaum. It was a city near the lake, or perhaps it was also known as the Sea of Galilee, Today, that's in the northern part of the country of Israel. And this town, Capernaum, was kind of a home base for Jesus. It was where many of his disciples lived and worked before they started to follow him. And we don't know exactly where he was when this happened. Uh, just in the previous chapter, he spent some time in Simon Peter's home, so maybe that's where he is right now. But in the rest of the chapter, we saw he was traveling around the region. He was preaching God's word, and he was healing 
people. And many people witnessed this. They saw him healing. They saw him teaching. And perhaps these men did as well, or maybe they heard about it. Jesus may have been intending, I'm going to go back to this city. I'm going to try to keep a low profile, maybe rest a little bit, but his presence is very quickly discovered. And we read in the passage that the report is as he at home and many people gather together so that there's no more room. There are people full inside the house and outside the house. And in this time and in this area of the world, houses were not the big houses that we may see around us. These houses were relatively small. At most, if people jammed in really tight, maybe 50 people could fit in this house. So it's packed to capacity there. And then even still, there's a crowd around this house. They're cramming near the door, hoping to see and to hear Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, as we talked about last week as well, he takes this opportunity to preach, to share God's word with the crowd. And if you weren't here last week, that that might surprise you to hear that because we think of Jesus, well, he's the one who healed people. He did miracles. He did all these amazing things. But in the Bible, Jesus spends a large amount of his time preaching and sharing God's word. What was he sharing with them? Well, Back in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, and he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What should people do? Repent, turn, and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus preached and spoke, he told people, you need to turn from your sin, your rebellion against God, and believe and trust in the good news that God alone can save people from their sin and rebellion. God alone can satisfy your true desires in your heart. And since God's kingdom, his visible reign and rule is coming, Jesus said, this is urgent. You need to turn from sin and turn toward God. So Jesus did much more than heal people. He did more than just meet physical needs like when he fed 5,000. Jesus had a message for those who came to him, and that message demanded a response. Everyone he spoke to was challenged to embrace the truth of his message, and they were warned against rejecting it. This was Jesus' purpose. He says this. We looked at this verse last week. The disciples want him to keep healing, but he says, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. Why? He says, because this is why I came out. This is why I am here to preach God's word. He viewed it as one of his primary responsibilities. He thought it was important that people hear the word of God. And so that's what he's doing. But then we're introduced to five men, well, one paralyzed man and his four friends. So this man is paralyzed, he's flat on a a bed, a a stretcher, not like a stretcher that we would use today, but some probably wood sticks that tied together with a mat on it so that they could carry him. He's unable to move most of his body. We don't know a lot about him. Maybe this happened recently in an accident. The, The passage doesn't really tell us. We can't be sure. But he's being carried by these four men. Maybe they're his family But at the very least, they care a lot about him. They are his friends. And they come, they hear Jesus is there, and they see this great crowd around the house, and they realize, we can't even get to the door with this man, let alone get inside to where Jesus is. 
but they know that their friend is hurt. They know that he is suffering, and they know that Jesus can help someone like him. And so, uh, they probably don't think in these terms, but they take advantage of first century architecture. <laughs> in this part of the world, the houses were often one-story houses that had a stairs on the outside that led to a flat roof. You didn't have a garage, you didn't have um, an attic, you would put things on the roof of your house and the stairs were on the outside. So it seems they went up these stairs onto this roof that would have been made of branches and thatch, maybe sticks combined with clay and mud. In the Gospel of Luke, he describes this house as having some form of tiles that were there. And since this roof is flat, they go up there and they literally dug through the roof or at least move these tiles just as if they're digging a hole in the ground. And when it was big enough, they lowered their friend into the room. And why did they do that? Because as the point in your notes emphasized, they grasped that they needed to bring their suffering friend to Jesus. Now, often when sometimes people talk through this story, sometimes there's a lot of focus placed on these men. And the reason I emphasize that we're starting with the least important point is because sometimes we focus a lot on these friends and look at everything they did to get this man who was hurting to Jesus. They tore up a roof to get their friend to Jesus. What will we do to bring those who need Jesus to him? Nothing should stop us from doing that. And I, I don't mean to say anything against anybody who says something like this. I'm sure they have great motives there. I'm not criticizing them. But for this morning, I'd like us to change our focus. Instead of being on those four men and what they're doing to get their friend to Jesus, let, let's look at who they're bringing their friend to. They take these drastic steps because they know their friend needs Christ. We can talk about how we bring others to the Lord all day, but if we lose our focus on the one we're bringing them to, the God who can heal, the God who cares, then we can forget or obscure why we do it in the first place. This is a faithful way to approach this text because these four men, they're, they're mentioned bringing him. At the beginning of verse 5, Jesus says that he sees their faith and then they completely disappear from the story. As we'll get to very soon, the main point of the story is something about Jesus, not about these men. And you know what? I, I think they would be okay with us turning our focus away from them because I doubt when they came to the house, they said, you know what would be really cool? It would be really cool if we went up on the roof and dug through there. I bet 2,000 years from now, people will still be talking about that. That'll be awesome. Let, let's do it. Now, no, no, that was not their thought. Their thought was, our friend needs Jesus. How can we get him to Jesus? And I don't think they left thinking, wow, that was great. That was so cool. You saw what we did. We went up there and we dug that hole. You dug so fast. That was all wonderful. No, I think they left praising and thanking the one who healed their friend. They tore up that roof not because they thought it was necessary, but because they thought Jesus was that important. They had faith in him. They trusted him to heal their friend. So if we interact with someone who doesn't know Jesus, then we should do what these men did, present Jesus as the solution to their suffering. Whatever issue someone is dealing with, a relationship with Jesus is the only true and lasting solution. A drug can make the pain go away for a little. A therapy can help process through something for a time, but the only eternal solution 
is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our text should remind us to tell others the word of God and bring them to Jesus because he is worthy to be known. He is what every soul needs. Why? Why do we need Jesus? Well, because the second truth we discover in our text, we bring them to Jesus because the Son of Man forgives sin. The Son of Man forgives sin. This middle portion of this story may surprise us a little bit. Sometimes if we're telling this story, we, we are tempted to skip over this little part here. Because they let the man down through the roof, and so here he is before Jesus, this completely paralyzed man. He cannot work. He's unable to provide for himself. He's completely dependent on the mercy and grace of others. And again, this is 2,000 years ago. There's, there's not a, a governing structure that's there to help him. There's no social safety net. He doesn't have workers' comp. He doesn't have health insurance stepping in to help here. He is completely helpless before Jesus. And in our mind, we think, Jesus, the, the loving one, the caring one, if somebody's helpless before him, what is Jesus going to do first for this helpless man? And what Jesus says to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And if we're thinking particularly maybe in our 21st century mind, but even being there, imagine those friends up on the roof, they let him down and they're like, oh man, Jesus can heal him. Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And, and what else? Is, is that it, Jesus? Is that, that all you're going to do now? This guy can't move. He needs help. What are you talking about sin for? You see, Jesus thought that this was important to emphasize. In fact, this is not even the only time that he speaks this way to someone in need. We read in the Gospel of Luke where he has an interaction with a woman who it says is a sinful woman. It doesn't flesh that out for us, but probably someone involved in prostitution. And Jesus says this, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, just like he said to the man in our passage, your sins are forgiven. And then the rest of the passage is similar to the one we're reading today. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman is told, just like this paralyzed man, that her sins are forgiven. So the forgiveness of sins appears to be very important to Jesus. So what's happening here? Well, we saw in our passage, verse 5, Jesus saw the faith and trust that the friends of this man placed in him. Maybe it was the faith this man had as well, and he responds with grace. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, kind of indicating to us that this is probably a relatively young man. Your sins are are forgiven. He's not promising someday your sins will be forgiven. No, he is saying now they are forgiven. That's his message. And this has an impact because remember I told you this house is maybe 50 people tops, but all these people are jammed in really close together. So these words are overheard. The, the friends that dug this, this hole in, maybe they heard those around the house here and we're told how the crowd responds to this. Apparently, some of them are said to be scribes. Verse 6 says, some of the scribes were sitting there. 
questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These scribes would have been uh, the primary religion in that area, and Jesus, too, practiced Judaism, so they were Jewish religious officials. Remember, this is 2,000 years ago. He didn't have a copier. He couldn't send an email. If you wanted a copy of something, you had to hire somebody to write it by hand and copy that document. That's what these men did professionally, particularly Scripture, God's Word. They would spend most of their lives reading and rereading God's Word and making a copy of it. So they knew Scripture very well, and they knew what the Old Testament said about forgiveness. And we can critique them, but they are correctly recognizing something here. They know from the Old Testament that only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus says he can do this, then he is claiming to be God. If somebody said that your sins were forgiven and they were not God, then they would be blaspheming. They don't have the authority to say that. And so their questions in their head actually reveal the truth that Jesus is God and that he is about the business of forgiveness. And that's always been God's story. He has always been a forgiving God. He created us in a perfect relationship with him. We had perfect intimacy and enjoy being in God's presence. But through our sin, our rebellion, our choice to do the things that we wanted, we were separated from God. And that separation, that, that action that we took, that sin has left a stain on us that it's humanly impossible for us to remove. But fortunately for us, God is in the business of putting away that sin. Another passage that describes this really well is in the book of 2 Samuel. This is talking about King David. King David committed adultery and murder. And when that comes up, this is the interaction he has with Nathan, a prophet of God. David realizes what he has done and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. This passage portrays God as the only one who can do this. He didn't say, David, because you did this, your sin is gone. He didn't say, I put away your sin. He said, the Lord has put away your sin. Only the Lord can forgive you. There was nothing David could do at this point. He sinned horribly. God, in his grace, had to remove his sin. And our text today shows us how God can do this. He puts away sin. He offers forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. God is perfect. He can't ignore our sin and rebellion against him. It has to be paid for. Only then can it be put away. But since Jesus lived perfectly for us and died as our sacrifice, he paid our debt to God. He purchased forgiveness for God's people. He was and he is able to forgive. He has the power, the authority to do that. We see him exercise this again and again throughout the Gospels. And even after Christ died, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, miracles were performed by his followers, but they made sure that everyone knew the power to do this is because of Jesus Christ. After a healing happens in the book of Acts, this is what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. He says, it's by his name, by faith in his name, that has made this man strong, whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
So miraculous healing and more importantly, divine forgiveness of sin can only be attributed to Jesus Christ, the fully God, fully man, Savior who is there for us. And again, just to go back to our, our text here, it's, it's so fascinating that this is what he starts with. You know, in my mind, I'd be tempted to say, well, I would heal a person, and then if I was Jesus, I would say, and I can also give you forgiveness of sins. But Jesus knows that this man's issue of sin is much more important than whatever it is that is paralyzing his body. It was more serious for him to know that this forgiveness was there. Now, that can get us in an uncomfortable place. We could say, well, was there something really wrong that this man did that caused this to happen? It could have been, uh, but we can't put that out on everyone, that anytime anybody suffers it's because they've sinned against God. But it does seem to be suggested that something like that had happened here. And on a larger reason, if we suffer from sin, if we suffer with illness, if we suffer at all, it's because sin has infected this world around us. And so by Jesus starting with, son, your sins are forgiven, he's starting with the most important problem there is in each of our lives and the most important problem there is in the world. And that priority of Jesus should make us stop and think for a moment. Because do we view sin as the most important, the biggest, the greatest problem in the world and in our lives? Do, do you see sin as your greatest problem? And I'll be first to admit that if, if you ask me, Pastor John, what are the problems, what are the issues going on in your life? My first response is probably not going to be, my sin is the greatest problem in my life. That, that's, that's not typically where our minds go. We're not naturally inclined to think that way. Our mind goes to things like, well, th this aspect, this relationship, maybe it's this friend I have or something, there's an issue there, or with my spouse, or, or with my kids, that's the greatest problem in my life. Or our mind goes to our jobs. Oh, I'm having this issue at work. That's the biggest problem in my life right now. Maybe our income. I'm not making enough money. Everything costs too much now. That's the biggest problem in my life. Or some other circumstance or situation that's outside of our control. But Jesus has seen the truth that sin is our greatest problem and he is the solution. Scholar Danny Aiken puts it this way, often we think we know what our greatest need is. But really, we're only focusing on our circumstances. In reality, the problem you are facing today is not your spouse, children, or parents. It is not your job, boss, or coworkers. It is not your lack of resources, your shortage of time, or insufficient income. Just like this young man, your greatest need is for the Messiah himself. He is your greatest need. And so I have a question for you, and that question is, has Jesus solved your greatest problem? Has Jesus solved your greatest problem? If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm unsure about those things, then, then I have bad news for you. You are enslaved to sin. If you experience discontentment, a lack of joy in life, it's because you've not embraced a relationship with God. He's created you for a relationship with Him. Your greatest need is to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, knowing Him is not a guarantee that you'll never be sick. It's not a guarantee everything will go well in your life. Perfection waits until He returns to reign and rule. 
But if you turn from sin and you trust in him, oh, then Jesus solves your greatest problem. It's part of how God's Holy Spirit cleanses us from the sin that separated us from God. So if you don't know this forgiveness, if you'd say, well, I, I try to make things right with God on my own, oh, I encourage you to ponder what happened here. Before God, you are like this paralyzed man, unable to move. You cannot make yourself right with God. You need Jesus to declare your sins are forgiven. And I would encourage you, if you do not know Christ, that you talk to me or talk to someone else today and say, tell me more about this. How can I turn from sin and believe in him? I would urge you to seek him because Jesus is the one that you need. Turn from sin and trust in him today. And you need him because he's the only one who can help. Because the point that our text really emphasizes is that this son of man has authority. The son of man has authority. Jesus is God. He deserves to be known as such. He is the only source of ultimate authority in the universe. And in particular, he's the only way to solve our separation from God. If we look in our passage, verse 8 tells us that even though Jesus is fully human, he has, he's also fully God. He has some degree of knowing what's going on in people's minds and thoughts. And he knows these thoughts of the scribes. And we read in verses 8 and 9, immediately Jesus, he perceived in his spirit what they were thinking about, what they were questioning within themselves. And he said to them, why do you question these things within your heart? And then here's the challenge he gives them. Which is easier? To say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And again, that, that's, that's a really interesting question that Jesus asked, because we can think about it in several different ways. On the one hand, it's much easier to just say your sins are forgiven, because we can't see what's happening there. There's no way to know this side of eternity if anything actually happened. However, if a man then picks up his bed and walks, that's very visible. But on the other hand, even today, if somebody's paralyzed, you can get some type of crutches. There's lots of wonderful work going on in prosthetics to help people move. You can have a wheelchair. There are ways to make people move and walk again now, but only God can forgive sins. So Jesus challenges them with this question before he then goes on to solve both issues. But first, verse 10 reveals the main point of this story. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Friends, this verse, verse 10, is the key to understanding this story. The reason why we have this passage in Scripture is not because it's such a cool image of people tearing a roof off. It's not because it shows us, wow, Jesus can heal someone who's paralyzed. The reason this story is here is so that we may know that Jesus, the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins. By saying this, Jesus is implying that these scribes should go back to their question. If Jesus can forgive sins. If he can do this healing, then he can forgive sins. And if only God can forgive sins, then who is Jesus? 
Remember, as we read this book, we talk about it on Sundays in these little snapshots here or there, but it was written intended for us to read through the whole thing in, in one sitting. And so Mark, writing this, wants us to be thinking through this question. Yeah, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Son of Man? And let's talk about that word for a second, because here's where Jesus says it. He claims this title, Son of Man. It's not just saying that he's human, but it's a particular promise in the Old Testament that there is a figure in the Old Testament called the Son of Man. He shows up in a prophecy, a vision that the prophet Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says that, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, he sees someone who's described as like a son of man. And this Son of man, he sees, comes before the Ancient of Days, before God, and is presented before him. And to this Son of man, to him, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And what happens? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." When Jesus says son of man, maybe some of the people there are like, oh, he's just saying he's a person, but probably those scribes and others recognize, wait, is he claiming to be this person from Daniel? This person who God says he's going to give a kingdom to and everyone will serve and worship him? He says, yes, I am that son of man, the one with authority, the one who has the power to heal and forgive sins. He already said in verse 5 that he had forgiven this man of his sins, but now he demonstrates his power to heal. And since he can perform that visible miracle of healing, he must also have the authority to do the invisible miracle of forgiving sin. Again, the whole point is to leave us sitting with that question, pondering who is this Son of Man and eager to learn more about him. And at this point, even though it would have been what most people did, who were there probably remembered, the last verse is just kind of the falling action of the story. We've seen Jesus's authority, now we get to see what it looks like. With that key word immediately, we see all the time in Mark, this man rose and he immediately picked up his bed, he gave evidence to Christ's word. He rises off the floor, gets that bed and walks out of the house. Maybe Jesus told him to go home so that people could see, oh, this continued. It wasn't just a temporary thing, but he was able to return home, return to work. He was a living testament to the authority of the Son of Man. And the result is people are left thinking about, wow, can he really also forgive sins? All of Jesus's miracles, everything he did was to draw people to that conclusion. He is God and he is the authority to forgive sins. So this morning we've looked at this passage and it's painted a very vivid picture for us of this Son of Man. The challenge it's given to us is we should bring those who are suffering to Him because He forgives sin and He has authority. He solves our greatest problem, sin, and He solves it through His sacrifice on the cross. He is the divine Son of Man. He has authority over sin and he has authority over everything there ever was, everything there is, and everything there will be. And the question we're probably left with is, so what? So what? What does that mean to us? What impact does that have on my life now? How in the world do I respond to that? 
Well, first, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not have a relationship with him, then I hope it makes you desire to want to come to him, to want to experience that forgiveness, to seek more of him, read more of the gospel of Mark. I realize we're preaching it, but it's okay if you go ahead and read the rest of the book. I promise you the ending, I can spoil it for you. He dies, he rises again, okay? Now you can go read the rest of it there. If you want to know Jesus more, then seek him in his word. Learn more about him. Or talk to someone about how can I know Jesus like this? But if we do know Jesus, then we're not left in the dark about what we're supposed to do either. Look at the second half of verse 12. So the man goes out and we're told that everyone else is amazed and they glorify God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The people stand amazed at Jesus' authority, and their response is to glorify, to praise God. God being glorified, honored, and praised, and Jesus' fame spreading around, that's normally what happens when Jesus does one of his miracles in the Gospels. And this is how people responded. They saw what he was doing, and they praised and glorified God. We see this again in Luke chapter 7. Here Jesus raised a young man from the dead, and we're told that fear seized them all. Who is this? But yet at the same time, they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I hope I've made this clear to you that the point of this story is not, oh, wow, look what these guys did, or oh, wow, Jesus could heal someone who was paralyzed. No, the point is to draw our focus to say, wow, Jesus is great. He is amazing. He can forgive sins. Yes, a miracle looks cool. It's really exciting. But the purpose of miracles in Scripture is not so we remember how cool they are or how great they seem. The reason they're there is so that we remember how great our God is who did it. I like how Pastor Charles Spurgeon put it. He was reflecting on this passage, and he says, when we behold, when we see, when we think about Jesus, God in human flesh, that Jesus was here among us, then the miracles no longer strike us as being at all marvelous because the incarnation of God, the fact that Jesus was here and lives for us, lived for us and died for us, that out-miracles miracles. That phrase, out-miracles miracles. That's who Jesus is. Because of who he is and what he did, he's greater than any other miracle or blessing that we could experience or possess. You could gain all there is to have in the world, and it would not compare to this amazing miracle of Jesus, the one who can forgive sins. And God has done so much for us, but especially for those who know Jesus, who have this relationship. Yes, the circumstances of life sometimes distract us, make us forget. Sometimes we don't think very much about, oh yeah, sin was my greatest problem. Sin was something that was going to control my eternity, but because of Christ, now it no longer does. And this problem I'm dealing with now, yeah, it seems like a lot right now. Yeah, it's really hard for me to bear, but Jesus has already taken care of my greatest problem. If we're experiencing good times, not to be everything's going well in my life. Yes, but remember that Christ is the one who is saved and forgiven. We shouldn't get distracted by gifts so much we forget the one who gave them. 
And so if we want to respond to this passage, oh, we should respond by giving glory, praise, and worship to the source of every blessing. How about we do that now? Let's take time to praise and thank, give glory to God, the one who saves us and forgives us of sin. For those who know him, let's praise him, for he alone is worthy.